So I wanted to um, talk tonight about intimacy. And I wanted to start off with what I thought was a, a very brave and courageous sharing um, that Thich Nhat Hanh communicated in his new book, Cultivating the Mind of Love. Um, and one that also, I think, shows up some of the contradictions um, of our heritage. Yeah. He speaks about um, meeting this nun. Her behavior as a nun was perfect. The way she moved, the way she looked, the way she spoke. She was quiet. She never said anything unless she was spoken to. She looked down in front of her. I was shy too. I never dared look at her for more than a second or two and then I lowered my eyes. After a few minutes, I said goodbye and went to my room. I didn't know what had happened, but I knew my peace had been disturbed. Nothing changed the day before, but inside I understood. I knew I loved her. I only wanted to be with her, to sit near her and contemplate her. During that night and all the previous days and nights, I never even had the idea to hold her hands in mine or to kiss her on the forehead. She represented everything I loved, my ideal of compassion, loving kindness, bringing Buddhism into society and realizing peace and reconciliation. That desire in me was so strong and sacred that anything like holding her hand or kissing her on the forehead would have been a violation. She represented all that was important in my life and I could not afford to shatter it. She was in her room like a princess and the bodhicitti in me was the guard protecting her. I knew that if anything happened to her, we would both lose everything the Buddha, our ideal of compassion, and the desire to actualize Buddhism. And now I want to read, I won't show you the picture because I don't want to elicit anything, something from Lesbian Sacred Sexuality. You say you belong to me. I become frightened. Then I remember the stars belonging to each other. I think how the wind belongs to the sky. This is the way I belong to you. We hitch our rides without controlling when or how. What makes me fear belonging when belonging lights our way to one another, sweet self of myself, my molecules, respond to you by rearranging. Recognition reshapes me. We are self-seeking self, and the seeking has gone lives long. I want to know your body. What we have to teach each other comes through our bodies. I belong to you the way I belong to the mother. I rest in you. You belong to me the way you belong to the stars. In my arms, you dream deeply my fears dissolve. We meet as equals in a new time, a time of no shame. 
What we have to teach each other spreads from the heart, the way my pleasure spreads from between my legs. I lay the gift of finding you on the altar, giving it back, turning over to the mother or fears, laughing in joy to her, I lift up this gift. I remember when I was the resident teacher at Insight Meditation Society, a, re a retreat center in Barrie, Massachusetts, and I met a woman that I was attracted to. I felt myself become enmeshed in a deep conflict, feeling that perhaps as Ty did, that this opening and this connection that I felt was actually something that would take me away from the practice of the Buddha, that in some way or another would distort the teachings of the Dharma, and that what this connection and attraction was that I felt was really attachment and was delusion. And after all, the teachers at IMS, and there were many of them, very few of them were in relationship. And so, I found myself caught in this dilemma. And I remember one day walking in a walking meditation down the road and thinking to myself, I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to go with it. It feels the right thing to do. And it was a very courageous act on my part because there was actually very little support for this. And yet, there was something inside of me, something that called me to touch another person and share both our bodies and our hearts, and at the same time, practice the Dharma. I want to tell you that I have the deepest thirst for the Dharma, that I feel enlivened by it, protected by it. I feel that my whole being has been deeply, deeply transformed by it. And I also want to tell you that I am in the most beautiful and loving and committed relationship with a woman, something that I haven't yet really achieved until now, that I've had relationships, that I've had long-term relationships, that I've had sexual relationships that have been very short-term, and that I find myself now in a space of both feeling deeply devoted to the Dharma and also deeply devoted to a woman. The poem that I read was not for me a fantasy of some future realization. It was really, I think for me, a description of often what I experience, not all the time. I get lost and I get caught in my things, but I feel that my relationship with my partner really in some way or another is held in the container of understanding that it is part of the universe of things, part of my universe of things, part of my community of things, part of my family of things, and that the spiritual practice that I have is deeply part of that as well. So for me, the Dharma, the way of teachings, has not been something separate from my love of myself or another woman. 
the Dharma actually has been an integral path. I don't think I could come to the space where I sometimes really allow my partner to <coughs> turn over all to the mother so that she becomes the altar so that she belongs to the stars in my arms and not to my attachment. I could not come to that place of living and loving without the Dharma. And it has actually been the deep understanding of the Four Noble Truths that has most helped me. It has been those fundamental pillars of the Dharma that has actually helped me actualize the vision of loving a woman in a way that is universal, part of the truth, part of love. Bear with the um, formal expression of the Buddha. I want to read you how he talks about the first three noble truths. Remember I said this morning, um, that after the Buddha came to enlightenment, he, he, this is what he first talked about. I'll say it here. <clears throat> as long as the absolutely true knowledge and insight as regards these four noble truths was not quite clear in me, so long that I was not sure that I had won that supreme enlightenment, which is unsurpassed in all the world with its heavenly beings, spirits and gods, amongst all the host of ascetics and priests, heavenly beings and men, could say woman too. But as soon as the absolute true knowledge and insight as regards these four noble truths had become perfectly clear in me, there arose in me the assurance that I had won that supreme enlightenment unsurpassed. What now is the first noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering, decay is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair are suffering. Not to get what one desires is suffering. In short, the five groups of existence are suffering. <coughs> What now is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is craving which gives rise to fresh rebirth and being bound up with pleasure and lust, now here, now there, finds ever fresh delight. What now is the noble truth of the extinction of suffering? It is the complete fading away and extinction of this craving. It is forsaking and abandonment it is liberation and detachment from craving. <coughs> so, <laughs> appears contradictory again in some way, doesn't it? But actually for me, my path of opening and loving has really rested very squarely and securely on those three noble truths that I just read. It is true, and we know it from these few days of sitting, 
that many of our experiences are experiences that we could characterize quite easily as suffering. Is that true? Would you say that you've had some unpleasant experiences, these experiences that you have considered uncomfortable in some way, that pains that you would rather not have, mental states, mind states that you would rather not have? Or maybe you've all been in bliss every single moment. (laughs) Really, we just have to look at these hours, not even hours, just minutes, that that we have been in this room. And we can see that this life that we live inside of ourselves is imperfect, that it is uncomfortable, that sometimes it is extraordinarily painful. Some of us have gone through deep illness and it has been extraordinarily painful. Some of us have gone through incredible mental breakdowns and fragmentation and that has been deeply painful. Some of us have lost friends and lovers, parents, and that has been extraordinarily painful. My partner's mother has been really sick. She has been um, dying, actually, over and over again of emphysema. And it's an extraordinarily painful disease because not only can you not breathe, the incredibly high dosages of cortisone, of pentosone, that are given to keep her lungs clear mean that her skin keeps breaking apart and she has these incredible gaps and sores all over her body. And then, because she's been so weak, she slipped out of bed and broke part of her um, backbone, a disc. She broke several discs. She's in agony all the time. She ran out of her medical nursing days, and the hospital would only take her for so long. And so she went to live with my lover's sister. And my lover's sister wouldn't give her some pearls that she had been explicitly told she shouldn't have. And my mother-in-law went crazy. She took her shit and she smeared it all over the apartment. And then she started Um, banging in the middle of the night, the cupboards and the walls. She was going crazy. There is the deeper suffering and pain in being sick, in being sick and in being sick and losing our minds. And this this is something that might touch each one of us as we get older. It's not just out there. The first noble truth is really the invitation for us to open our hearts in the deepest way to understand that our experiences often are extraordinarily uncomfortable, painful, full of grief and lamentation, as the Buddha says, full of sorrow, as he says. In the second noble truth, he asked us to look at grasping, that place where the mind moves out to clutch in desire of what he called pleasant sensations or to push away what is called unpleasant, what we don't want, 
I find inside of myself that I have constructed a whole mythology of myself that in a way has been an understandable but often not helpful way to deal with the reality of this life, to deal with the reality of the first noble truth. I have constructed myself in some ways to be articulate, intelligent, somewhat attractive, um, sort of physical and, you know, healthy, healthy looking. There's also some negative construction, sometimes feeling not good enough, um, um, inadequate, um, a victim. And that definition that I've carried of myself actually is a way, a subtle way of grasping and of aversion. I am trying to control my experience. I have identified myself in a certain way as some way to get a sense of myself in this life and I've imprisoned myself in it. I am actually a set of concepts that's what I call me or, me or mine, a set of concepts and ideas held by grasping and aversion. And this grasping and aversion deeply imprisons me. It imprisons me and it imprisons all of us because it doesn't allow the experience, whatever this movement of experiences is that arise inside us, to be there because it's not part of me. I'm, I can't feel that way, I'm the intelligent one. Or, I, I can't feel that way, I'm the teacher, I'm sitting up here. It's deeply painful, that schizophrenia that we create, where we push away certain experiences and grasp for others in trying to hold on this identity that we've constructed for ourselves. And this identity that we've constructed for ourselves has, in some way or another, been helpful to us. But finally, when we come to touch that vision of freedom that we carry inside of ourselves, we come face to face with it. And haven't you all also confronted that in the sittings? No, not only have you experienced many unpleasant experiences or frustrations or pain or um, not wanting the wandering mind or um, wanting the breath to be a certain way. But haven't you all related to those experiences through the sieve or the pair of glasses of what kind of person you think you are and that somewhere or another you think you shouldn't be having those experiences? That really you don't think they need to be in the definition of who you are, or at, or at least who you would like to be. No, I, I don't like this particular meditator here, sitting here with this crazy mind. I'd like it to be different. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's really great to see. It's beautiful to see, because it's so liberating to see it. And it happens moment after moment after moment, how we filter that reality. 
how we try to construct and control that reality to make it fit into the type of person we are. It is fascinating how we can grasp onto things. I have in my meditation practice, you know, when I've been retreating with other people, found myself in a wonderful flow of walking, you know, and I'll watch. I'm walking. And I'll, I'll look around. I'm walking. I'm a good walker. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Here I am practicing dissolution of the ego and I'm I'm walking. <laughs> I have a really good walk going here. <laughs> what the Buddha is saying in the second noble truth is that that movement of the mind to hold onto or to push away is the movement that builds the construction of our identity is the movement that imprisons us, is the movement that is the building blocks of our suffering, of our little sufferings, and of our deeper suffering. Grasping or aversion imprisons us in a relationship where we become the victim. Whenever we don't want something. That not wanting immediately binds us into a relationship where we feel we are a victim. And hasn't that been true? Where that experience of the mind being out of control and us not liking it means that we experience the mind being out of control as a victim. Every time we don't like something, we victimize ourselves. Every time we move towards a grasping of something, we victimize ourselves. We immediately place ourselves in a relationship that is unempowered, that is disempowered. And that's what the Buddha is saying. He is saying that liberation is when we're able to free ourselves from this particular relationship. As soon as I want this, I am in a disempowered relationship to it. I don't mean want in a, in a, in a delighted way. I mean want in a grasping way where I'm holding on. I feel a victim to it. Did I, did I bring, no, oh, yes. Uh, no, I didn't, I, I had this great poem I was going to read, but I didn't, I didn't bring it. What the Buddha said in the third noble truth when he talked about the cessation of grasping and aversion is what Eric and I have been talking about a lot, which is, opening to and accepting what the experience is. When he talked yesterday about, yesterday about Kuan Yin and the energy of compassion, and he said the first step is to open and to allow and to accept. That is the invitation of the Buddha, to open, to accept 
the difficulties, the unpleasantness, the suffering, all the things we don't like, as well as all the things that we like. To really allow that when it comes, whatever that is that we don't like, to open to it. That means letting go of our identities, it means letting go of the places where we don't think we should be having the experiences we're having. And it means opening our heart to what the universe is bringing us. In that acceptance, we become free. So, intimacy with ourselves is really about letting go. Intimacy with our partners involves exactly the same process. Because often we're confronted with a being that we are holding on to in some ways. We love, quote, some parts of them and grasp for it. And then there are other parts that we don't like at all. <laughs> I'm not that crazy about my partner when she's PMSing. She is extremely irritable and there is nothing I can do right. She is like incredibly judgmental when she is PMSing. However, I love my partner when I'm having a very challenging time in life and you know and I'll go to her or like I'm on retreat and I'll call her up and I'll say oh it's blah 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 you know oh I'm caught in my old stuff and it's so painful and she'll say oh honey I'm so sorry you know you really are a wonderful teacher or a wonderful person I love you and it's like I adore her in that moment <laughs> <laughs> And how the Noble Truths have helped me is in the understanding that she, like me, is imperfect. That sometimes she brings to the relationship things that I don't like, sometimes quite painful things. And sometimes she brings things that deeply challenge me. And that like life and like myself, she is no different and asks for my acceptance in the same way that my life asks from me acceptance. And it is this ability to practice and to live with the understanding of imperfection that has helped us live through the first few tumultuous years of touching each other's wounds, of triggering each other, of sometimes really not very pleasant fights and coming to understand that it's imperfect sometimes a lot and sometimes just a little but always in the long run imperfect so I practice the first noble truth and what I've also come to understand and why I feel this relationship has been a very deep part of my practice is that not only does she happen to challenge me when she's being grumpy or judgmental, but actually she has found a way to zero in, 
to all those places that I have defended to the utmost. <laughs> I've never really liked committing myself that much to another person, <laughs> and she's really challenged me around my inability to commit. I haven't even liked to write little notes saying, going for a run into the Y for a swim, see you in two hours. And she's asked me to write those notes. I have always identified myself as a person, a Gemini, who is free, who likes to come and go. <laughs> she has challenged me around all those constructions that I have talked about, that I have harbored, that have been defenses against the places that I haven't really wanted to look at places that I really haven't wanted to do any spiritual practice around. <laughs> I have really found my relationship to be an incredible spiritual practice, as I have had to own up to my stuff, as I have had to struggle around my inability to commit, as I have had to struggle around our sexuality and my old wounds of abuse, as I've had to struggle around communication skills to really communicate what I've always kept silent inside of myself, and in the understanding that it is letting go of this holding, of this grasping, of this identity, in the understanding of the second noble truth, I have been able to open and to love in new ways. Working in a relationship and letting go of those deeply whole constructions of identity has been very liberating for me. I find it's been five years now, young in a way, young still our relationship, that nevertheless, as we have both let go, of the, of the places of holding, or at the very least, as we've both been able to honest, be honest with each other and say, honey, I'm stuck. I'm stuck there again. I just want to let you know I'm stuck. As we've been able to be honest with each other, so the kind of cessation the Buddha talks about, that cessation of grasping, and the happiness and the equanimity that arises comes into being, so that there's a lot more equanimity and a lot more joy in our relationship than there was at the beginning. <coughs> All of this is held in the understanding, sometimes forgotten, but eventually always remembered that everything is impermanent, that what comes to us is there as a gift and will leave at a time that is outside of both of our control, when we die or when we separate due to circumstances that are often beyond our control, brings about 
a challenge of letting go. And that's what impermanence invites us to do. Understanding that the events that arise inside of us, the experiences, in the end, always, always leave. There is nothing, there is nothing about our physical bodies or our mental states that doesn't change. When we talked about right understanding this morning, understanding impermanence is seen as a critical part of right understanding. Understanding over and over again, and we know that especially in our community, with all the challenges we face with breast cancer and AIDS, so many of our friends dying, so many of us dying, we deeply understand the gift of impermanence, that there is nothing to hold on to. There is nothing to hold on to. There is nothing to hold on to. No experience, no deep pleasure or deep pain, because it will always change. It will always change. That is the nature of living in this body. That understanding allows us to keep coming back into acknowledgement of the truth of our relationship with ourselves and with our partners and with our community. And that is that we're in a universal process and that life brings us, as the rain brings us certain experiences and the sun, that life brings us certain experiences that are not me or mine, but are just the universal part of life living itself. And they are guests that come and go. We understand that some of this coming and going is imperfect and not what we like. And that's fine. We don't have to like everything. And in that understanding, we realize that we are empty of a solid entity called self, that we are not this construction, this identity of notions and ideas, that, are we, that we are this flowing process. In this understanding, We are guided into a deep and a true intimacy. In the blaze of love, it is known we are particles of each. We are cells of the mother of all. We cannot be cast off from sister cells or from her, from brother cells or from her. Her breath is the breath of our lungs, her heartbeat times our own. Where she is winged, we fly, we swim with her dolphins, wind through rocks with her jeweled snakes. We bloom in her million flowers, we grow in her ancient trees. 
and die in a night with her moths. In rock we wait with her, dreaming of fin or flesh, of the awful miracle of human heart and mind. In the blaze of love it is known, no being, no life is born, exists, or dies alone. We are given the gift of intimacy, of knowing that we are never alone. Ever, 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 truly alone. Opening to our experience and our love for ourselves and our partners finally means deeply practicing the precepts that we undertook at the beginning of this retreat. There is no love possible without practicing the precepts of non-harming because non-harming is the very end, is the Harming is the very antithesis of intimacy. Harming brings separation, and harming brings hardening. Harming brings defense. Harming brings isolation. Practicing the path of intimacy is practicing the Four Noble Truths. The first, understanding the imperfection of life, the second, understanding the nature of grasping and aversion, the third, understanding that cessation of this suffering is possible, and fourth, the Eightfold Path, having the right understanding about impermanence and imperfection, non-self, practicing the precepts, and finally doing what we're doing here, the Buddha said that you can't do it without meditating, whatever form of meditation you take, that the practice of intimacy necessarily rests on the cultivation of kindness and awareness. We don't need to take robes. We don't need to become nuns, nuns or monks to practice the way of the Dharma. But for intimacy, I have found no other way but to practice the Dharma. May all beings come to the deepest loving, to the deepest intimacy and connection with themselves, with their partners, with the community of Earth. May we be able to practice right understanding, right intention, non-harming, and the cultivation of awareness, loving-kindness, effort, and concentration. In this way, may we be free.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.